This is Dan Kamen, and you're listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thanks so much for joining us on the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, comedy is in motion. We're joined by Dan Kamen. He's an expert in physical comedy, monster movements. In fact, he created the comedic sequences in the motion picture Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr., and Benny and June, starring Johnny Depp. In fact, it was the actor Robert Downey Jr., who called him the foremost expert on Charlie Chaplin. He wrote a book entitled The Comedy of Charlie Chaplin, so it's a great pleasure to welcome performer, actor, and author Dan Kamen. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be here, Paul. It's a pleasure. So, what do you think Charlie Chaplin would say if he could see the world today? Well, that's, I, I don't think he'd say anything because he his great gift was expressing the most complex portraits of the human condition without words. Chaplin had the astonishing ability to take our our the range of life experiences that we go through, and especially the the, the bitter and sad ones, and turning it into hilarious comedy. I would hope if he was with us today, he'd be making us laugh without saying a word. So how did your interest in Charlie Chaplin begin? Totally by accident. I went to college to study industrial design, and I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, which had an extraordinary student-run film series. And what was extraordinary about it was it wasn't just showing the films that had been in the movie theater six months earlier. Every year, they began with silent movies and worked chronologically up to the the really hip, exciting films coming out of Europe at that time, uh, made by Federico Fellini, Ingmar Bergman, Michelangelo Antonioni, Francois Truffaut. So in the course of four years going to school, we saw, we were a witness, the camera's eye of what had happened in the 20th century through its most important art form, which is movies. And so midway through that, that my education, uh, when I thought I was preparing for a career as an industrial designer, they showed a Charlie Chaplin movie. And I had never seen one before. I didn't even know what he looked like because Charlie Chaplin was pretty much erased from the America of my childhood. And his movies weren't shown on television or, or in movie theaters. So I was unprepared for the impact this film had on me, it was simply the best film I'd ever seen. And I love movies. I grew up watching movies on television and going to them every week in the theater, but I'd never seen a movie as good as this. And it was a silent movie. It was without saying a word. I've spent the rest of my life, in a sense, uh, trying to figure out what happened because I, it was a collision. It, it changed my life. That There are certain moments in our life that we know is a turning point. And that was that. that was one for me. That was a turning point for me because I immediately wanted to find an entry into that world. This might be a difficult question, but could you say what Charlie Chaplin's greatest talent 
was because, I mean, there are so many things that he was able to do. Maybe you could shed some light on what you think. What I knew from that first experience was that he was the coolest guy I'd ever seen. He faced all these, the movie I saw was, was the gold rush, his comedy from 1925 in which he's a gold prospector and his, his inspiration for doing it was reading a book about the Donner Party expedition that got snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the 1890s. And to survive, they ate their shoes and eventually each other. And he thought, what a great idea for a comedy. So he, he puts himself into a situation where he's in a cabin with, with another guy and they're both starving and he suddenly turns into a giant chicken in the other guy's eyes. The other guy hallucinates him from his hunger delirium and, and goes after him with a, with a great big knife. And it was really funny, but at the same time, underlying it is this deadly serious situation of starvation, hunger, man's inhumanity to man, how we turn into beasts when the situation warrants it. And I just never saw a film that was, that, that did all those things. And at the same time, he didn't look like, he was an actor, obviously, but he didn't talk at all, uh, like most actors I had seen uh, and grown up watching. He moved like a dancer sometimes, and other times he moved like a puppet or a robot. And he could seem to, he seemed to be able to turn his body into whatever he wanted. At one point, he's frozen in the snow. He pretends to be frozen in the snow to to con his way into to a warm warm cabin from a, from a kindly prospector. I just had never seen an actor with that range. And also, I wasn't looking at all those things at the time. I wasn't aware of it. I was simply seeing a great film. And all I knew is I walked out of the theater and I wanted to be as cool as him. And I found myself aping his movement. I, I started carrying, you know, it didn't rain all that much, but I started carrying my umbrella. I had a full-length umbrella around more than I had to. And it started to take on this whole life of his own, rather like the cane that he always carried as, as his tramp character. I love the way that he, he flirted with the dance hall, the pretty dance hall girl. I love the way he dealt with the, with the gigantic guy in the cabin who was trying to, trying to make him into dinner. I just wanted to be that cool under pressure as he was. I wanted to be Charlie Chaplin. Hmm. I think that's, that's a key. That was, you asked what his greatest talent was. Everybody wanted to be Charlie Chaplin. I mean, you know, I, I, I now know from all of the uh, reading and research I've done and, and being lucky enough to get involved with big projects like the, the film with Robert and other Chaplin projects over the years that, that the world went Chaplin nuts in 1914 and 1915, long with the gold rush. Everybody thought everybody wanted to be him. Every guy wanted to be him. Every, you, and you could because his movements were simply so easy to imitate. All you had to do was spread your feet apart, lift your derby straight up off your head or whatever hat you were wearing, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders in a certain way. He, he developed, he real, since the movies were all silent, he recognized that to be a comedian meant to do funny, not to say funny. So everything he explored how every, literally every moment, every gesture, the, the things we take for granted, walking, how do you step on a, a curb? Funny. How do you turn a corner? Funny. How do you light a cigarette? 
funny. How do you fall funny? And, and you know, so it was this incredibly rich uh, creation of a of a comic icon that was based on the everyday movements out of real life turned into signature comic bits. And it was exhilarating to see. What do you think any actor could learn from Charlie Chaplin? Well, that's a great question. When I worked with Robert to, to help him portray Chaplin, to turn into Chaplin, one of the things that I realized that I never even had realized before was the astonishing relaxation of Chaplin's body during his performances. It's something, you know, when you achieve mastery, like at first when you try to ride a bicycle, your body is very tense, and eventually you relax. You're not afraid of falling anymore, and you, you, you master the basic skills. Chaplin became so comfortable with his character and what he was doing uh, on screen with the, you know, uh, he reached a point very quickly where at first he was an actor just doing what other people told him. Somebody else would write and direct the movie within two or three months because his movies hit so quickly and became popular so quickly. He demanded the autonomy to write and direct his own pictures. And uh, he was the first actor, the first mime artist of genius to be able to watch his performance from the outside because he was watching the rushes every day and he would go to the movie theater and see how the audience is reacting. And one of the things was that his body gets very relaxed and he's, you know, of course he's sometimes running and doing things that are active things. But if you look at somebody, great, any great athlete, a pole vaulter, a baseball player, football player, you see that they're not wasting any energy. They're doing what they have to do and nothing else. And this comes across very clearly. So that's an act. That's, that's a lesson that, not only actors can benefit from, but everybody. It's sort of the only other person who comes to mind who has that quality. I mean, there are a number of people who do, who are just great performers, is Fred Astaire. You know, sure, he's doing all those dances, but one of the things that makes him so appealing is that they don't look like they cost him any effort. It looks like he just naturally moves like that because of the emotion of, often it's an emotion of, of having wanting to make a relationship with Ginger Rogers or his other leading ladies, they're courtship dancers quite often. And of course, when you're courting, all kinds of energy is released in your body, and so all of a sudden, life becomes like a dance. And that's what Chaplin's message is: is that you know, when you're in a, when you're really on, your life becomes like a dance, hmm. and it's exhilarating to watch. It's a pleasure to watch in the same sense that watching good dance is a pleasure to watch or dancing is a pleasure to do or playing a great sport. If you're good, good at anything, that physical mastery is a pleasure, but then it's uh, added to it is the pleasure of these comic ideas that he expresses in his movies and not just comic ideas. You know, you can't come away from the gold rush saying it's just a comedy. It is a comedy, but it's a lot more than that. It's a comedy about, some, you know, I once uh, asked a group of people, what were the three most important things in life? And everybody wrote down, oh, a, a great job, uh, you know, a, uh, um, a, a uh, they, they wrote down all kinds of different things, but nobody wrote down food, clothing, and shelter. And that's what the gold rush is about. 
it's 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 really about not freezing to death and not starving to death. It's about the fundamentals of life. And Chaplin was able to get at that in his comedies, which is a, a rather extraordinary achievement. They always had this gravity about them because they were dealing with with fundamentals. Where did Charlie Chaplin learn how to do all of these things? Well, that's a great question, and I don't know that there's any any real answer for it, except that he did what all artists do, is that he molded his own, own experience. He transformed his own experiences into his art. He drew on himself. And in his case, you know, he might as well have been written by, his life might as well have been written by Charles Dickens. He grew up in the most dire poverty in Victorian London. His father was an alcoholic, a music hall performer who abandoned him and his mother before Charlie was two years old. His mother tried to continue on, but by the time he was five or six years old, she began to develop signs of, of physical and mental illness. And by the time he was 12, she was basically in a mental hospital for the rest of her life in various mental hospitals. And he was homeless on the streets of London. So he knew what hunger was. And he knew what life or death survival situations were about. Somehow, instead of succumbing to that and becoming a, just a, a Jack the Ripper or some maniac, he turned into a performer. He had some great gift at performing that was recognized pretty early on by all accounts. Uh, he started performing when he was nine professionally as part of a, a dance company, a group of tap dancing, they call, called it clog dancing in those days, clog dancing children, and toured for two more than two years. So he learned precision uh, movement right at the get-go, and then he got into an acting company that was doing Sherlock Holmes, the very first play that had, was written based on the Sherlock Holmes stories, and toured with that for a few years. And uh, then he got into some knockabout comedy comedies, and he started learning the craft of of comedy. So he, he literally was born to it. Both of his parents were performers and he was in the Victorian Music Hall was where he worked once he started performing in at, at age nine. And that was probably the greatest school anybody could have gone to for seeing what performing was all about. So by the time he began making films at age 24, he was a very seasoned professional, but he, he didn't he had done everything except for one thing. He was always told what to do in these various shows. He was in other people's shows. And as soon as he started making movies, movies were so new. And Max Sennett, who hired him to make movies for the Keystone Comedy Company, the Keystone Comedy Company had only existed for a little over a year before Max Sennett hired him. And one thing Charlie knew was that he didn't know anything about movies, but he, he was tired of being told what to do. So very quickly he asserted himself, and the, he was a, he was the right man in the right place at the right time for the explosion of American films as a dominant worldwide force and comedy, a certain kind of physical comedy that that of course silent films were a natural vehicle for, and uh, very surprisingly quickly before he made any of the films that we would consider great films today. He was on top of the heap. Within a year, there were bidding wars for his services. 
What are your sharpest recollections from working on the movie Chaplin? Well, that was an amazing opportunity to work on that movie. And one of the things I loved the most about it was that, you know, the, the early movie studios were outside. They were basically just a big wooden platform uh, with movie sets. And there were, the movie sets were side by side because, of course, nobody had to worry about making noise and spoiling somebody else's movie because there, were no, there was no sound. And so it was a, a big wooden platform. And they went about two hours from L.A. in, in the middle of uh, Orange Grove country and built this set. And it was a recreation of the Mac Senate studio. And they, it was rather than build props, they just got actual old silent movie cameras that were sitting there on tripods on the set and overhead, you know, you couldn't shoot under direct sunlight because it would make the, it would wash out your face. You know, you, you know, from photography, it's, you have to mute the sunlight mask it somewhat. So, all the movie studios had, although they were outside, there were great big muslin muslin sheets that were hung over the ceiling that were on kind of rollers so they could roll them back and forth according to how much sunlight was out. And they would diffuse the lights. So you didn't get shadows that were ruining the picture, essentially, that were so sharp or washing it out. And uh, those muslin sheets were over. And they, they, they made the stage into a kind of a magical undersea-like world. It was very amber and shimmering, and there's the movie cameras, and there's the sets, and it was like being transported back in time to the silent movie era. Because of the plot of the movie, they didn't want to simply do what he had done. They wanted new stuff. So I had the unenviable task of coming up with some new Charlie Chaplin comedy sequences. But to do them in that environment, and Robert was a very... He threw himself into this with, you know, f without any reservation. He, he was doing all the stunts himself. There were no stunt doubles. And so it was exhilarating. It was like being back. It was like a time machine. It's like a dream come true for me to be literally basking in the light of the silent film era and being and working on scenes that were being filmed and that, that eventually got into the movie. So that that part of it was just being on the set quite often alone as I would be working out stuff or just hanging out on the set after everybody else had left and it was twilight. And it was, uh, that's always something that I remember when I think about doing that movie. What was it like working with Johnny Depp on the film, Benny and June? One of the amazing things that happened as a result of working with Robert is that the word got around Hollywood. You know, it was not known in the outside yet that Robert, uh, was struggling with a drug problem, but it was well known in Hollywood. And the word got around, though, that he was actually pulling it off. He was he was managing to to do for an, for an actor to play Charlie Chaplin would be like we're deciding, you know, that new documentary that just came out about Luciana Pavarotti. It'd be like um, Ron Howard called you, Paul, and said, "I want you to be Pavarotti." And by the way, no dubbing. You got to do the voice because you can't fake. Chaplin's art was his body. It was the way he moved his body. And um, people were, the word was getting out that Robert was pulling it off. And as a result of that, the producers of Benny and June found out about me and the work I was doing uh, on it to support Robert and invited me to, to um, come in for an interview <laughs> and talk about the movie Benny and June and to meet Johnny. And, and in a sense, what I've been 
doing with Robert and then to to work on the actual routines that he did in the movie. But those routines had to be done very respectfully to evoke Chaplin's own way of working in, in his comedy. In Benny and June, it was a blank slate. The scriptwriter had come up with some the notion that this is a guy who can who can sort of channel a silent movie comedian, but what he did wasn't going to be wasn't very clear. It wasn't clear when I get involved. I was able to uh, persuade them that the comedy uh, might be uh, there were other possibilities in the comedy, and so I ended up essentially re uh, actually creating a lot more comedy for Benny and June than I did for the Chaplin movie, where the comedy was more limited to a few sequences because there was so much life story to tell. Uh, Johnny, again, like Robert, proved himself to be a very, very, I mean, he he threw himself into it quite literally. Uh, Robert did some stunts, but Johnny did some uh, quite dangerous stunts in the movie. And again, there was one stunt double for a thing they wouldn't allow him to do where he had to fall off a roof. But he did everything else himself. And it was just a pleasure working with him and working out the routines for him and with him. We spent a lot of time. The first day I met him, he was a chain smoker at the time. I took a cigarette from him and pushed it up my nose. I'd been doing magic since I was a kid. And he said, whoa, I've got to learn how to do that. And I, so I showed him the thing that I, that I say to everybody who says that to me, which is I, did my, I, did, I took a silver dollar and I rolled it around my fingers and said, if you can learn this, I'll show you anything. Because basically that's the, the, the price of admission. Because the magic that I like to do is, 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 will take a lot of practice. And he said, no problem. And two weeks later, he came back. And you can't do that in two weeks any more than you could sit down on the piano and after two weeks of lessons, sit down and play a Beethoven sonata. But he was beginning to be able to do it. And so we used magic as a break because... Uh, I said to him, I want you to do this certain kind of physical comedy, and you have to tell me whether you're willing to work that hard. Because, you know, in most movies, actors, there isn't much rehearsal time because, you know, they, they kind of show up and do it till they get it right, five takes or whatever, and then it's done. But you can't do that with the kind of comedy that, that I had uh, Johnny doing in Benny and June. It takes practice. And he was like, as good as his word, and we would always use the magic as a break time so for example when he does the the bit which i copped from charlie chaplin where he sticks the forks in the in in the sticks the forks in the bread rolls and makes them dance on the countertop in the diner that's something i saw chaplin do in the gold rush in that first film and i wanted johnny to do it as part of the movie i said you this is you got to tell me if you're really willing to work because i can guarantee you, you're going to take we're probably going to practice for 10 hours to, if, if this is going to look any good. And he said, no problem. And we ended up probably doing 20, 25 hours on that 30-second bit. I had actually over a month of just time with me and him to rehearse, which is uh, was, was a great luxury. So it was great. He was, he was uh, uh, everybody thought at that time, especially because his range of films had been Edward Scissorhands and uh, Crybaby and, you know, uh, um, Gilbert Grape, or all these is he a really strange, weird guy? Because he was choosing these outsider roles. And, uh, but I found him to be a, a really down-to-earth person and a pleasure to be around. Was there any revelation that you had that you got from writing your book, The Comedy of Charlie Chaplin? Oh, yeah. When you 
the reason I, I I wrote another book earlier, but the reason I wrote my first book, I, cause I, you know, I, I, as I said, I was studying industrial design and then I got smitten by this Charlie Chaplin film. I mean, gobsmacked is a better term probably, but what do you do with that? And what I did with it was there was a man on my campus in the drama department who was a mime artist. And at that time, you know, mime was not, it hadn't become a fad yet. And it was way before people started to hate it as a, you know, an overdone fad. But this guy was just wore white makeup. It was a different kind of thing than silent movie, than silent movie acting. But it was kind of like somewhere in between that and the kind of comedy that I'd grown up watching on television by Red Skelton and Jackie Gleason and Sid Caesar. You know, you're, you're a little too young to remember, but those shows, half of them, Half the show were silent characters that they would do. Jackie Gleason would play a rich drunk guy, Reginald Van Gleason III. And it was essentially a spin on Charlie Chaplin's own characterization of a rich drunk. And uh, so they, they would call it pantomime. But here was this guy performing in white face, and he would play all the roles himself. And plus there was this added element, which was that he was creating the sets himself. He was creating the props. Uh, the invisible wall thing, it, it boiled down to cliches of invisible ropes or walls. But when you saw those things, when I saw that for the first time, it was like magic. It was like this person is like supernatural to be able to create all these astonishing illusions of reality, of the real world, uh, without anything there except for his movement. And so I I latched on to him <laughs> The way that I had, you know, uh, been gobsmacked by by Charlie Chaplin, I still thought I was studying industrial design. I thought I was heading for a normal life and I was going to be a designer working in an office and I'd have a pension and all that stuff. But I just got so, again, I wanted to know the secrets. I just, would you show, and I would, you weren't allowed to take a drama class because the, you know, my classmates, like the guy who used to play music for our silent movies when we showed them was Stephen Schwartz. He was writing his first musicals for the, the campus musical series. And, you know, the, the drama department was very exclusive. You were, But this guy, his name is Jewel Walker, he was a great teacher. And one of the things I've found in my life is that a great teacher is powerless before the enthusiasm of a student. And I would just stop him in the middle of the campus and say, Jewel, how, how do you do this thing where you're leaning on nothing? And, and he would take a couple of minutes and I would go into the the, the student union where they had a, a wall-sized mirror in the boys' bathroom, and I would practice for a couple of minutes until somebody came in, and I pretended I was washing my hands or something. And eventually, Jewel just said, come on to the, you know, just shh, come on to the class. Just don't say anything. And so I became the master's apprentice. And after college, I realized very quickly that I, I had started to not only learn the moves, some of the moves, but... I started getting ideas for jokes. I'd never written a joke myself, but I didn't know if the jokes were funny until I found an audience to do them for. So I became a mime artist. I was just doing silent, straight-on mime. And then I started watching the Chaplin films and seeing them more clearly, because of, both because I'd watched them before, but also because I was looking at them with some of my own craft, sense of the craft of movement. Because, Jewel, part of the training was you broke down movements into its component parts in exactly the same way you break down music into scales, one note at a time, and, or a chord. And so it was a structural understanding. And I've suddenly started, that's when I started seeing 
what Chaplin was really doing. And I had gone to the library to find out that information by reading all the books I could find on him, but no performer ever wrote a book about Chaplin. And that's when I realized the only way I can read the book I want to read, which is what are Charlie Chaplin's performing secrets, is to write it. And so I wrote my first book, which was called Charlie Chaplin's One Man Show. And that that book was an act of total stupidity to write, because who's going to read a book like that? If you read any book about Charlie Chaplin that's ever sold, it's been about his sex life and the scandals and all that, uh, the crazy rags to riches story of the, the person who was, in many ways, I mean, he, when he got famous, Paul, he didn't just get famous like he's like a person is famous now. He was literally not only the most famous person in the world at the time he got famous, but he was, because of the way he got famous, the most famous person who had ever lived because every place that had electricity. I've gone to China to perform, and they never heard of the Wizard of Oz when they did the press conference with me. But they all, when I said something about Charlie Chaplin, they all put their finger under their nose and twirled an imaginary king. You know, his art penetrate everybody got those visual jokes so to write the book i wanted to read i needed literally to become a part of the craft myself and you know not many people initially you know bought that book but there were instantly open international doors of people who were gobsmacked similarly you know big chaplin fans or silent movie fans who uh, you know were unwilling to let this thing fade into oblivion because they had been also affected and moved and just found the films compelling and funny. And one of the people, one of the five people who read the book was Robert, who called me up in Pittsburgh and said, I'm playing Charlie Chaplin in this movie, and I think you may be the only person in the world who can help me pull it off, which I'm quoting from him directly because it said sound terribly immodest if I said that to him. And if, if you know, if it was anybody else, he would have just read the book and gotten the gotten the ideas of the book, but it was Hollywood. So he ended up, he came to Pittsburgh, we started working, and he got me hired on the film. And one thing led to another. And and so I, you know, because initially I was hired to, just to be the movement coach kind of thing, like you would have a dialect coach or a fight choreographer. But there was nobody, to my surprise, to choreograph the films, the, the scenes, and the, the writers, some famous writers were involved in the making of that film. But it's very hard this is why it's, it, it was hard to write my book in the sense it's hard to talk about something that is so totally nonverbal, non-words. When you're looking at a Charlie Chaplin scene, in one of my programs that I do, which is I don't play Charlie Chaplin ever. I'm six foot three and, you know, I, my body is very different, but I know how he moves. And I do some programs that are just devoted to, to sharing that understanding with people. And in one program, I show a 30 second clip. And I challenged the audience to, to unpack it, as we would say today, to decode it. And it takes about 15 or 20 minutes to do it because he's conveying so much information so fast and so clearly. You, everybody can see it. It doesn't. It's not confusing like interpreting a, a secret code. It's just that it's coming at you so directly and bypassing the normal channels of your brain. So literally, it, it's a revelation to people to realize that that's why they respond to jokes that are, I mean, how many jokes that were made a hundred years ago are still going to make an audience laugh? His do, even the ones he was making right at the beginning, not so much on when you watch them on television by yourself on YouTube or something, but if you see them in a movie theater, they unfold their particular power and audiences are 
are like it might as well be 1914 again because the audience is screaming. We were talking about how actors have a lot that they can learn from Charlie Chaplin. But my last question would be, when you think about the philosophy of Charlie Chaplin, the work of Charlie Chaplin, what do you think everyone, people, can learn from Charlie Chaplin? I think all art, on one level, is instructive. I mean, first of all, it's a pleasure. It's, you gotta, nobody goes for instruction. It, it's got a, what sold it at first was it was just funny. He was just the funniest guy in the world. He was like Steve Martin when he first hit. He was like Robin Williams when he first hit, and so on. But what keeps you coming back is that there are a lot of ideas about the world expressed in those films. Like one of them, I'll just give you one of them. Chaplin is being thrown out of the rich guy's mansion in the film City Lights. And as he's, as he's being literally grabbed by the coat and frog marched out, he, he, he grabs from a fruit bowl a banana. And as the guy's tossing him out, he's already peeling the banana. That is grace under pressure. And I think when we look at uh, not just a comedy, but, you know, one of the things we love so much about Harrison Ford and all those uh, Raiders movies or, or the Star Wars movies, he was showing us grace under pressure. It's a great object lesson. It's a great example of how we'd like to be. And Chaplin, in many ways, he shows us who we might be if we can, if we can get to our highest selves to our best selves, if we can really be that cool under the, the many stressful circumstances of our lives, if we can prevail, if we can show grace under pressure. What a great answer. Thanks. Thanks. Everyone out there, they can visit dancayman.com, K-A-M-I-N. Thank you very much for sharing with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for your your very very um, astute questions. Goodbye.